This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Uh, we're now coming to the time of scripture reading, and today we'll be reading from God's Word from the passage Luke 20, chapter 27, until Luke 21, verse 4. Sorry, come again. Luke 20, verse 27, until chapter 21, verse 4. Uh, let me invite Sister Faith up uh, to read the Word of God. Today's passage is taken from Luke chapter 20, verse 27, and we'll be reading to chapter 21, verse 4. You can follow along in your Bibles or follow what's projected on the screen. Verse 27. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage and they can no longer die for they are like the angels they are god's children since they are children of the resurrection but in the account of the burning bush even moses showed that the dead rise for he calls the lord the god of abraham and the god of isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Chapter 21, verse 1. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sister Viv, for reading. I will now invite Pastor Andrew Wong up to give this sermon. A very good morning to everyone. 
It's always a joy and privilege to gather with God's people and to have God's Word open up. So in fact, if you have your Bible, can I invite you to keep it open to Luke chapter 20. And for the youth, if you've got your Luke journal, this will be a great time to take it out as well. Now we'll be looking at Luke chapter 20. And um, why do we ask God to help us? Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray. We pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to us. We pray, God, as we open up your word, that our eyes will be looking at your word that we may hear from you because you speak through your word. So be with us this morning. For those of us who have had a difficult or busy week, we pray, God, that you get our hearts and our minds and our emotions back here so that your spirit will sanctify us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I like this pastor. He is an amazing pastor. He makes me feel good about myself. No, we need more pastors like that. In fact, you should come and listen to him. I didn't see anything. I was held hostage by this lady with a comb and a scissors. And she wasn't talking to me, actually. She was talking to the lady next to me, my hairdresser. Perhaps you might have heard a different versions along your journey as a Christian. Someone might say, I, my pastor says that God does not want to judge anymore. He only wants to bless. In fact, I must claim more of his blessings. Or still, we may hear similar chatters that goes like this. I love to invite people to my church because my leaders say we should not judge and we should only love and accept. Now, dear friends, as the culture and our society move, there's an increasing demand for religions to be more sensitive towards the ever-shifting cultures. Should churches be too quick to marry cultural demands and spiritual teachings? Should churches be too quick to marry cultural demands and your scriptural teachings? Would it be a refreshing change or would it be a spiritual suicide? What does it cost for religious leaders and institutions or churches to build a cultural and people-pleasing religion. Now this morning, we picked up from Luke 20, verse 27. After Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, the epic center of the Jewish religion, this was the supposed place for people to find God. However, when Jesus entered the temple, he found a religion without God, an institution that kept its religious facade. It looks very religious, but was absent of a relationship with God. Now, in the previous chapter, Jesus was so furious when he entered the Jerusalem temple that he cried out this, my house will be a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. And last week, we heard a series of challenges by religious leaders and elites regarding Jesus' authority and Jesus silent them. Now this morning, as we return to Luke 20, we witness one last attempt to trap Jesus with words. And this time, it was led by a very powerful 
institution. So turn with me to Luke 20, 27. This is how today's passage begins. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Now my question for us is, who are Sadducees? Do you know who they are? They are actually a religious sect that was rich and very, very powerful. They have religious and political control over the two most important institutions for the Jews. And these two are the Jerusalem Temple and the Sanhedrin. Let me explain these two to you. Many of us are familiar with the Jerusalem Temple. If you are here listening to the Gospel, we are told, in fact, in the Gospel, in the Bible, in Acts as well, that the high priest in the days of Jesus, namely Annas and Cyphus, they were both Sadducees. Okay, you find it in Matthew 26, 3, or Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5. They were amongst the instigators who would very soon put Jesus to death. The Sadducees had control over the Jerusalem temple. And they also have power in the political sense because they are a huge part of the Sanhedrins. What are Sanhedrins? Let me explain this to you on the screen as well. The Sanhedrins were the governing authority for all matters relating to the Jews. So the Sadducees were among the Sanhedrin, which you can find reference in Acts 23, and they had religious and they have legal authorities over the Jews. So the Sadducees are very, very powerful people. Now the Sadducees came to challenge Jesus regarding the topic of resurrection. But before we even look at argument in today's passage, I want us to actually recognize what is the implication of challenging the topic of resurrection for the Jewish society and its implication for us. What is the implication of arguing about resurrection? Let me explain to you what the Sadducees believe. I put it up on the screen. This is what they believe. They, first of all, they believe and they emphasize on the Torah, which are the first five books of Moses. But they reject the rest of scriptures, especially those that were still oral traditions of their time. Those that the Pharisees, which are another religious sect, believe in, they reject. They believe that God does not get involved in human destiny. They reject supernatural beliefs, which means they don't believe in angels, they don't believe in heaven and hell, they don't believe in the resurrection. And listen to this. By implication, if there is no resurrection of the dead, there is no judgment for those who have died. Do you catch the implication when we are arguing about resurrection? Because if there is no resurrection of the dead, then there is no fear because there is no judgment for you. Okay, so as we come to this point, this is the point that they are arguing. And, you know, if there is no resurrection as declared by your high priest, you know what it is? This is a paradise for those who are rich and powerful. You can do whatever you want. And this is a horror for those who are poor and helpless and lives in the hands of the Sadducees. Now, the people may not always like them, 
But the people are fully dependent on the Sadducees because if you want to go to the temple to worship God, you believe that there is a God, you have to go through them. If they tell you that your ship is not clean enough, you have to buy their ship. If you bring your coins, they say your coins are dirty, you have to get their coins. So the people are dependent on the Sadducees. Such was their reputation that John the Baptist in in the book of in the Gospel of Matthew 3 called them a brood of vipers, and Jesus himself called them in Matthew 16 that they are the east the disciples have to be careful of. So now as we come to the passage, this is the test on resurrection. It is not merely an intellectual debate, it is a spiritual declaration. Is there life after death? And by implication, is there judgment? For us are people accountable to god or do people just depend on their religious leaders so important is this topic you realize that even the pharisees who didn't like jesus wants an answer for that so look with me on this challenge what is the challenge presented to jesus the rabbi they brought up a marriage practice in moses's law let me give you another big word um, i promise not to give too many uh the gift they bring up this practice called the Leviarate marriage. Let me explain it to you, and as you listen to the, the, to the argument, you will get it. So a Leviarate marriage is this. It stipulates that if a man's married brother died childless, he must marry his widow and provide an heir for the deceased in Deuteronomy 25, so that the dead brother's name will not be blotted out of Israel. Okay, so if you are married, you have a wife, you died, and your wife didn't have a kid for your name, your brother is obligated to marry your wife to give a son for you. So that is the divided marriage. And here is the argument and the riddle that humiliates the Pharisees and challenges Jesus. So the Sadducees said to Jesus, now, Rabbi, there are seven brothers. The first brother married a woman but left no heir when he died. So by the Levirate marriage practice, the next brother had to marry the same woman but once more died without an heir. Can you imagine how ridiculous this example is and how frightening if you're one of the seven brothers? Because each time it comes, you have more responsibility to give many heirs for your brothers ahead and you know she curses all the men and all of them have died and it's your turn next. So. It, it is a kind of a ridiculous example that brings before Jesus. But you know what? None of the Jews there would be laughing like us. You know why? Because it's their history. In their history, they have exactly this same account. In fact, their, their forefather, Judah, you know Judah, the forefather of King David, Judah had this account. He saw his daughter-in-law, Tamar, as such a cursed woman. His first eldest son, Ur, married Tamar. He died without an heir. So the second son had to marry Tamar again. Uh, Onan, and Onan died without an heir. And Judah says, I'm not giving my third son, Salah, to her. And that, you know, turns out really badly because he ends up being the one that gives the next heir to Tamar. So the riddle the Sadducees present before Jesus is hilarious for us. It's a spike for the Jews. And this is it, verse 33. Look at it in, in your Bible. 
This is their challenge to Jesus. Now, assuming, okay, Jesus, assuming, let's go with you, Jesus, assuming there is resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven all married her? Now, think with me for a moment, what, what is the dilemma here? What's the issue? What do you think is the dilemma that they bring to Jesus? What is the challenge? I bring to you two big challenges in this account. Think with me for this. There are two big problems. The first is this. If there is resurrection, this woman and the man at resurrection, this woman will be an immoral woman for the rest of her life because she has seven men. Now, what kind of eternal shame it is to have seven brothers sharing one wife or one woman having seven husbands for eternity. It's ridiculous. The second one is this. All right, maybe she just have one husband. Which one? Which one gets a wife and the other six are shamed for doing their job? You know what the Sadducees are bringing to Jesus? It says, if there's resurrection, then you're making a fool out of Moses because he gave this law. You catch that dilemma there? If there's a resurrection, are you saying that Moses is wrong to provide the Levirate marriage as a law? Now, this riddle will stumble any Pharisees since they believe in the resurrected life. In fact, the Pharisees believe the resurrected life is just an extension of what you have now. Maybe better, maybe better, but it's similar. So the crowd around them, you can imagine, they didn't laugh about the seven men, but their eyes are on Jesus. What will Jesus say to the, the seducers, right? The Sanhedrins, the high priests, the priests, the leaders of our time. So Jesus, he looked at them, and he gave his reply in two parts. Okay, look at it. The first is he corrected their misunderstanding of resurrection. And second, he will bring Moses back to correct them. Jesus also showed them that there will be judgment. So follow me in your Bible. Look at Luke 20 verse 34 as Jesus answered this. Look at it with me in your Bible. Verse 34, Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection of the dead, he goes on. Now, Jesus didn't begin by going back to Moses. He first spoke authoritatively to the Sadducees to correct them. So first of all, he said, life is actually divided into two parts. This age and the age to come. This age and the age to come. So in the age to come, people will not be given in marriage or be married. Now the second he says is this, look at it. There are those who are worthy in God's eyes and there are some who are unworthy in God's judgment. The worthy takes part in the age to come, in the resurrection from the dead. At the resurrection, the worthy, they will no longer die. Like angels, they will be immortal. The worthy will be called God's children. 
But the resurrection itself, when they are resurrected for eternal life, proves that they are accepted as God's children. Now, when we come to the topic of marriage, you, you, if you read the Bible, suddenly you've got a lot of questions about marriage all comes in, right? Uh, those of us, when we hear there's no more marriage in, in heaven, may say, yes, finally! If you say that, all quietly inside, perhaps you had really painful experience before. I wouldn't laugh at that, right? Because it's tough. But there'll be those who say, how come? Because either you long to get married and have someone to love you, or you had such a good marriage. Can't imagine you go to heaven and I can't hold my wife's hand. And How come like that? So, so you could have all kinds of people saying this. Uh, I would suggest that there are many other passages to talk about marriage, including Ephesians 5. If you go for a wedding, you always hear it. That it says marriage is a reflection of Christ and his church, the bride. There are other passages about marriage, but for today's passage, I just want to bring out the point that Jesus wants to bring up regarding marriage. And his point is this. There are no more marriage because there is no longer a need to procreate. Jesus' point is this. There's no more marriage because you do not need to give birth for someone to take your name so that you will not be forgotten because you will never die. You do not need procreation because you do not you will not die and your name will be with God forever. That is the big point that Jesus is bringing out here. Second is that all relationship in the age to come will be perfect and beautiful because we will be perfected like angels and because we are called the children of God, we will behave perfectly and enjoy perfect relationship as God's children. So the point is this, whatever the future looks, we will have the most perfect relationship and life with everyone else there. We will not be shortchanged, our names will not be blotted out by death. So that is Jesus' point, that you got it all wrong if you think about resurrection in your old ways. However, there is a serious warning right smack in the middle in verse 35. Look at it, Jesus actually gave this serious warning he said it in a positive way, but you have to think of the implication of those who ask. Jesus says there are those who are considered worthy. Now, who considers whether one is worthy or not? It will not be the religious leaders. And we'll see in the very next passage after this, who actually has authority to judge if you're worthy or not. But to run it off here, Jesus goes to Moses to silence the Sadducees. Okay, this is Luke 20, 37. Let me read to you. <coughs> he says this, Even Moses showed that the dead rise when he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. This is taken directly from the burning bush account from Exodus 3 verse 6. Now, it's not so clear. I put Exodus 3 verse 6. It started with the first sentence, I am the God of your father, and he carries on. Okay, Matthew quotes that. Luke doesn't quote the first portion. So the tenses here are not as clear as the original in Exodus 3 6, where God said, I am the God of your father. Now I want to first look at Exodus, and then I'll come to Luke. So follow me. I want to borrow an example from 
uh, Pastor Ken Hughes, he, he says this, just imagine with me, right, someone comes to your house and say, I am your father's friend. I'm your father's friend. What does it mean? It could mean two things. Um, that it, let me re move back a bit. I said, I was your father's friend. Okay, let's use that first. I was your father's friend. It could mean two things. One is uh, your father's dead. So I was your father's friend. Or kind of we had a quarrel and we are no longer friends. So I was your father's friend. Okay, so the was, it tells you that either he's dead or you're not related anymore. But when he said, I am your father's friend, it means two things. One is, your father is still alive, so I am still friend with your father. And second, I am your father's friend. We are still connected relationally. We are still friends. So you, you get it, when, when God said, I am the God of your fathers, he's saying two things, that he is still alive, we are friends, we, we, we are connected, and I am his God, and he is my people. Okay, so that is the obvious part in Exodus. But even in Luke 20, 37, without saying, I am the God, I want you to look at this with me. The emphasis is here in Luke 20, that Moses emphasized this, that he is the God of, he is the God of, he is the God of, he is the God of those who are alive. He's the God of the relationship with God do not end with death when it comes to an eternal God. So here, Jesus concludes his argument that even Moses says that they are alive because relationship with God does not end with death. For to God, all are alive. Verse 38. So those that we do not see, we think they did, God sees them alive. They will come, the resurrection, where they receive a body physically, just like we will, and we will be with God. So at this, Jesus' answer silenced the Sadducees, both on resurrection and judgment. So dear friends, as we consider the Sadducees' failure to retain all of God's words so that they can do what they like, the question comes back to us, how do we, you and I, view scriptures? Do we come under the full authority of scriptures or are we selective in our Bible passage to fit us? Because if you do not take the whole Bible, you can do anything you want with scriptures. Anything you want, you just reverse engineer it and you can find it selectively in scriptures. And so the big point for us is, are we like the Sadducees? Will we be like crowd-pleasing teachers in their selection? Will say anything that tickles your ear? And how do we view resurrection and judgment? Do we believe there is resurrection? Do we believe there is judgment? In fact, let's ask deeper, do we have a relationship with God? Or do we merely play religion? Playing religion is a waste of time. Do we have a relationship with God or do we merely play religion? There are those who have a relationship with God and there are those who play religion without God just like the Sadducees. And those who hold firmly and carefully to God's word and those who quote scriptures merely for cultural approval and personal satisfaction. These two are different 
And in this passage, Jesus confronts the godless religion of the Sadducees while affirming God's people, those who are worthy, who will be raised as the children of God. Now, at this last test, verse 40 tells us, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. The Sadducees, the other religious leaders, they will find a different way to silence Jesus. They will murder him. But yet, do they know whom they are exactly dealing with? And this is where Jesus moves on in verse 41. Look with me to verse 41. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? And the rest is going to be a monologue because they, Jesus is going to speak to himself. He's speaking to the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the teacher of the law, but no one's going to answer him. So it's kind of a monologue. And the question really is about the authority of the Messiah. So Jesus continues by quoting Psalm 110. Just now we have read it, Psalm 110, but in Luke is verse 42. David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. Jesus says, how then can he be his son? So here is Jesus' challenge to everyone who listens but refuse to answer him. Now, it's a common knowledge, if you are with Jesus at the time, it's a common knowledge the Messiah is the son of David. Everybody knows that. Okay, everybody knows that. It's in 2 Samuel 7, you have famous passage. We, you and I always hear in, in Christmas, but Isaiah 9, it tells us the Messiah will reign on David's throne over his kingdom. Isaiah 11 tells us he will be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. You know, Messiah is the son of David is well known at that time. In fact, so well known, the Sadducees and the religious leaders, they were so upset over the last few chapters because you have that blind man that says, Jesus, son of David. And as Jesus enters Jerusalem, they, they lay the cloak and say, Jesus, son of God. When they quoted the psalm to say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, people were recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David. But is that all there is to the Messiah? Is his power merely a replica of King David? Well, Jesus' rhetorical question actually declares otherwise. Now, quoting Psalm 110, Jesus is showing from Scripture that the Messiah is more than a human king with human authority. He's a divine king with divine authority. If you look at the Hebrew text, it's even more obvious. Just now you're reading from Psalm 110 direct because in, in the Hebrew text, it's actually saying this, that the Lord God Yahweh says to his Lord Adonai, sit at my right hand. So if you look at Hebrews, it even, it's even more obvious. So just consider this, how it works in a human monarchy, right? Uh, the late Queen Elizabeth, he would, she would never have called King Charles my Lord in her lifetime. Or his grandson, William, my Lord, she would never do that, even if they get to inherit a crown, because she is before them. But here you have King David calling his future great-great-great-grandson, my Lord, because he recognized they are on a different path of kingship. The king that is going to come is a divine king. And if anyone is familiar with Psalm 110, which all of you are because just now you did a responsive reading, right? 
you know that that short psalm goes further than just the divine king after David. Because the next verse that goes is this, isn't it? You read this together. In Psalm 110, verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And verse 6, He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. So David, in the entire 110 Psalm that he wrote, he declares the Messiah not only as a king beyond his lineage, he declares the Messiah the priest beyond the lineage of the first priest Aaron. In fact, do you know who is Melchizedek? If you follow the story, Melchizedek is the one that gives the blessing to Father Abraham, who in turn gave a tenth of all that he had won back to God through Melchizedek. So what is happening here when Jesus quote 110, he's declaring that the Messiah is not just a human son of David, he's the divine priest king. Which means that when he had gone to the temple and declared, this is my house of prayer, he is claiming what belongs to him, that the Sanhedrin, no, not the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the, the priests have usurped from God. He actually answers their question, what authority to come? But here, and not to them earlier on. Now, Jesus' question is also his answer to the religious authority, but of course, they will refuse to acknowledge this authority. But now it comes back to us, isn't it? Because we are the readers. How about us? Will we acknowledge Jesus' authority? To make it more specific, will we submit to Jesus' authority that he is the divine priestly king who can both save us and who will rule over us? He's the one who decides who is worthy for the age to come. The Sadducees and the Pharisees refuse, but will we accept? Now, dear friends, the scripture is not a book to establish our authority in this world. The scripture is a declaration of Jesus' authority over the world, and we do not get to selectively pick it to suit our taste. Will we acknowledge Jesus as God's divine priestly king and that Jesus alone can save you and me as well as to rule over us as our king? It comes together. The saving and the kingship comes together. As we move on, Jesus gives this final public denunciation of false religiosity in today's passage in verse 45. So look at this last section with me in verse 45. Now, while all the people were listening, he was there in the temple, everybody's listening to him. Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. No, there's no more ambiguity in Jesus' words anymore because he's going to die. He says, beware of the teachers of the law, the religious elites who love the praises of the world and they are aligned with the desires of the world. They want the power religion gives them, but they do not want the God of that religion. So they want a godless religion. They want the association with the rich and the famous at the expense of the poor and the needy. So Jesus says, look at a few verses. He says, these teachers of the law, they look 
Religious in the synagogues, they, they love the greetings and honor in the marketplace. They feast like royalties in the banquets. But at the same time, they abused their power and they took advantage of the poor widows who needed legal help because they're women. The husband died, they needed help and they abused their power and they took advantage of them. And when they have taken advantage of the properties and everything, they do this loud prayer as religious people to show how religious they are. And Jesus warned everyone of such hypocrisy and he declared them unworthy for the age to come. In fact, verse 47, this man will be punished most severely. Now, dear friends, we must take Jesus's warning seriously. Even in our generation, we are warned of religious leaders who carry the appearance of religiosity but rejects the scripture and the authority of Jesus. They rob God of the glory that he has and put it on their own gown. They seek approval of the world and they rob the dignity of God's people. There is a severe judgment reserved for those by the divine priest, King Jesus. Now the tone of today's passage, if we end here, would have been really heavy because it is for the most part, a fanfare of religiosity that has no God. But that's not how this whole passage ends. As it comes to this temple, it's reaching the Passover. Jesus has been dealing with godless religious leaders. Luke gave us a glimpse of this poor widow. It just happened there a few verses who show a love for God with all her heart. You know, this poor widow, perhaps another of those whose house was devoured by the teacher of the law, she gave everything she had out of her love for God. Look at it. Um, one, commentator, one commentator puts it that, here's a woman who truly lives out the scriptures, that you shall love the God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. She did. She gave not half of her two mini coins, so that the other mini coins she can herself that last meal she gave all to God listen to this closing words that Jesus gave in Luke 21 verse 2 Jesus saw also saw a poor widow and put in two very small copper coins truly I tell you he said this poor widow has put in more than all the others all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth but she out of her poverty in put in all she had to live on so remember, this is the, the most crowded time you can ever find in Jerusalem because it's almost Passover. People are all coming in. People are giving their money. They're giving everything. While the eyes of the religious world, they were just fastened on the glitters at the temple treasuries. In the midst of all this, the priest king sees that one woman. She sees those who are the children of God. The very one he will soon die for in a few days time the very ones he will raise to life and will give them life now dear friends this short account of this woman with two coins it's not a comparison between the rich and poor it's not that at all what is it here for the ending of today's passage of the poor widow is meant to give us a great encouragement telling that jesus sees all of our hearts and all of our lives in the glitters of the world, he sees those who are his. 
he sees empty religiosity, but he also sees the wholehearted love of his people. Now, two weeks ago, we had this very disturbing news. This is where I'm going to close. We have this disturbing news coming out from the Church of England. The Church of England as it tries to balance cultural pressures and doctrinal truths. They wanted to declare God's blessings on same-sex marriage while insisting they hold on to the doctrinal stand that marriage is only between a man and a woman. Let me just read to you their official media release. This is their official media release from the Church of England. It says this, The General Synod has welcomed proposals which will enable same-sex couples to come to church after a civil marriage or civil partnership to give thanks, to dedicate their relationship to God and to receive God's blessings. But at the same time, they say, we have not deviated from the doctrine of marriage that a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman is the way that God has given us marriage. So they want to have both. They want to marry both. And they have done nothing. So while they welcome same-sex couples to receive God's blessing, those bishops also insist that they did not change their official stand. Now, it's, it's very different, don't get me wrong, because we, we need to love everyone. We need to let people know that God loves us and wants us back to Him. We need to know that. But it's very different to say that this is what God now agrees and He's pleased to do this. He's changed His mind. And say, oh yeah, God also says this, but yeah, we didn't change our mind. It's very different when you try to marry two things that are incoherent. In fact, when this media was released, the Archbishop Uganda calls this a suicidal path. The chairman of GAFCON, Archbishop Filet Beach, described this as the shredding of the last remains of the fragile fabric of a communion that they have. I want to read to you what Bishop Richard Condy, when he wrote in the Gospel Coalition, Australia wrote. I hope it's, if it's too small, let me just read it to you. This is what he said. They, the General Synod, promise a radical new Christian inclusion that they claim is founded in scripture, in reason, in tradition, in theology, and in Christian faith. But yet, when they made this declaration, they provide no theological or biblical justification for it. They didn't give any Bible verses for that. And, and Richard continues, he says, but perhaps the greatest betrayal is of the faithful disciples of Jesus who are same-sex attracted and they are living celibate lives in response to biblical teaching. In effect, these people, talking about the bishops, they have now told, um, these people, those who are celibate, are now being told by the Church of England that, you know what, your sacrifice, your integrity, they were all wasted, they are unnecessary. You didn't even have to do it. Who gets hurt? Those who try to love Jesus. Now, as, as I wrap this up, what do all this actually mean to you and to me anyway? I think it's this, because time will come and time will call on us as Christians and churches to make decisions either of the same or different issues. But will we remember Jesus' warning at the end of the day, he is the ultimate judge to say that those who are worthy are those who have turned away. It is a warning that we need to carefully hold on 
to the full authority of God's word and never be selective in using his words to do what we like. But we love God with all our hearts as the poor widow did or will we ultimately love ourselves as the Sadducees and the teachers of the Lord did in the temple of Jerusalem. One submits the authority of divine priestly king, the other grabs the throne of God for themselves and call themselves king. May the Lord have mercy on us that we will always be hold tight. In the first, second song that we sang before we came up, that the Lord will hold us tight when the tempter comes, that he will hold us tight. When we fail, that he will hold us tight and pull us back. That may we never fall off the grace because at the end of the day, the one who calls us worthy is not us and what we do, but the one who died and said that you will rise with me. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage that is solemn and heavy, where the book end of Jesus declaring that the house of prayer becomes a dance of robbers and next week we hear him denouncing the destruction of the temple, that he is the judge and we are the ones that stands before him. So Father, we pray that you help us in the midst of the world's glitters and the temptation of the world that God, you draw us close to you, that you hold us close to Christ, that we hold on close to his word, that we may not give up half his word for the world and the treasures of this world. Be with us so that God, when Christ comes, that we are with him. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Andrew, for the sermon. We will now have our discussion questions. And we have two questions today. Number one, how should we as a church be watchful and remain faithful to Christ? And number two, why is Jesus the only one who can make us worthy for the age to come? Let's take a few minutes to discuss this and we'll come back shortly. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.com.